Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. We welcome you to today's Beeson Podcast. Dr. Robert Smith and I are here to introduce you to a great sermon from the Beeson Pulpit. At Beeson, we value the importance of preaching. In fact, the mission of our school is to train pastors who can preach. And we're going to listen today to a pastor who preached at a great critical moment, a crisis moment in his life, did so with great passion and great impact on those who heard him, Dr. Howard Eddington. When he brought this message to us in 1995, he was serving as pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida. I had invited him to give our convocation message at the beginning of the spring semester of this year. And about a week before he was scheduled to give this message, his son, his only son, was tragically killed in an automobile accident. As soon as I heard this, I called Dr. Eddington and said to him, You have our sympathy and our prayers in this great, great loss, and we certainly don't expect you to fulfill this assignment. But he said to me, Dr. George, I must come and give this message. I have to be there to fulfill this commitment. And so he came and spoke to us out of his heart and out of his uh, passion of that moment, the great crisis and pain of his life. Dr. Smith had not yet joined our faculty in 1995, but you've had a chance to listen to this sermon. Can you tell us what we're going to listen for as we hear Dr. Eddington preach? It would be very important for you to listen for identification. James A. Sanders, who taught canonical hermeneutics at Union Theological Seminary and also Claremont School of Theology, said that biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but mirrors for identity. And this is a sermon for identification between the preacher and the hero. Uh, This preacher takes and lifts up the uh, the idea of the witness of preaching. And he talks about what he has learned over and over again. So he uses First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 20, verse 3, in which David says uh, to Jonathan, there's only one step between me and death, and then connects that with First Corinthians 13, 13. And now abideth faith, hope, and charity. But the greatest of these is charity. Uh, the importance of First Corinthians 13, 13 is for him to reside within that particular passage to show what he has learned about how they sustain him in the midst of a crisis. I really appreciate uh, his willingness to allow truth to touch down upon life and to show that uh, hope and faith and love will sustain us. He really believes, and the listener ought to listen for this, that the validity of our ministry uh, really uh, rests and is proven in the crucible of a crisis, and that faith and practice are inextricably connected. So be on the lookout uh, for that, uh, because if our testimony, according to Howard Eddington, is worth anything, then it really shines when we find ourselves in the crucible of, of suffering and uh, difficulty. Uh, he really does relate to some of the uh, more powerful preachers um, of the last 100 years, like uh, Arthur Gossip, 
uh, who was a, who was a Scottish preacher and like Eddington lost a child, William Sloan Coffin, who also lost a child and closes his sermon with H.G. Um, Spafford's It Is Well With My Soul. And so this idea of identification uh, is tied together as a, a thread that runs throughout the fabric of the entire message. Uh, he emphasizes the word only uh, in a real powerful way. He says that uh, John David was his only son. He says that several times. And then he connects it with the fact that Jesus Christ was the only begotten, the one of the kind son of God, and that God gave him uh, up for us. Therefore, uh, he sees God as being one who does more than just sympathize or empathize with us, but one who identifies with us in that he spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all that he might freely with him give us all things. Uh, there is in this chapel the um, presence of feel back. You feel with this preacher. But there's also the resounding amens because there are people here who either directly or indirectly understand what it is like to have faith that sustains in crisis, hope that undergirds in crisis, and love that helps an individual to be an overcomer in a crisis. We invite you now to join us for this remarkable message, one of the most compelling sermons I've ever heard by Dr. Howard Eddington from the Beeson Divinity School Chapel in 1995. I suppose I would like to hold on to the title that's printed in your bulletin. But I beg your leave to change what I was intending to say and to change the reading of the word. I hope the reasons why shall become clear. Across more than 25 years of ministry, I don't know how many, many times I have read the last verse of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. But suddenly now, words have taken on new meaning and new power for me. Please listen, this is the word of God. So, faith, hope, love, abide, these three.
actually do. Great old King David once said, There is but one step between me and death. Just one step. Tell me about it. On a stormy night, in the first hour of December the 21st, my son, my only son, John David, took that step. On city streets, made slick by driving rain, John David lost control of his car and crashed into a tree. In an instant, the candle of a life that had burned so brightly for 22 years was snuffed out. There is just one step between me and death, said King David. Just one step. The telephones ringing in the middle of the night jolted my wife Trisha and me out of a deep sleep. The voice on the other end said, There are Orlando policemen at your door. Will you please let them in? Foreboding began to rise about us like floodwaters. And then, out of the rain, out of the night, and into our kitchen, stepped Orlando police officers and the Orlando police chaplain. His name is Barry Henson. I've known and respected him for several years, but that night I came to love him. He came delivering the worst news that any parent can ever hear. But he delivered it with such extraordinary care and sensitivity. I shall never forget what he said and what he did. Very gently he said to us, There has been a terrible accident. 
and your son did not survive. He then went on to explain to us what of the circumstances of the accident they knew at that point. And then he embraced us in his great, big, strong, loving arms. And he prayed for us and with us a deeply moving prayer. With his message, our hearts had been shattered. But with his prayer, our hearts began a long, slow, still continuing process of mending. In my ministry, I see so many, many people who have a difficult journey to make through life. I suppose because I believe that the validity of one's faith and one's ministry is proved in the testing times. And I guess maybe because seem to be able to focus on a little else in recent days. I'd like to share with you now some of the things that I've learned all over again in the death of my son. I've learned all over again that life is uncertain, yes. I've learned all over again that there is just one step, one step separating us, separating you, separating me, just one step separating us from death. But also I've learned all over again that in the midst of life's grave, uncertainties. There are some things, three things, to be precise, which last. There is faith. There is hope.
His eyelids closed in death. I said, it's over. But it's not over. It's over, yes. His life on this earth is over. There can be no denying that. And there can be no denying the pain of that. It's over. But my faith would not leave it there. My faith went on to add the phrase, but it's not over. For there could be no denying that either. I shall see my son again. It's over. But it's not over. And I wondered then, what it would have been like for me in those moments if I had not had any faith? What would it have been like for me if in that moment all I could have said was, it's over? I tell you, I think I would have gone mad or perhaps tried to take my own life. And I wondered then and I wonder still how in the world it is that anyone can face that kind of tragedy, or for that matter, how in the world anyone can face tragedy of any kind without faith. Being able to say, it's over, but it's not over, turns unbearable grief into bearable sorrow. Some years ago now, the great Scottish preacher Arthur John Gossett lost his wife to a tragic and untimely death. When next he returned to his pulpit, he preached a sermon of incredible power. The sermon ended with these words. We do not need to be afraid of life. Oh, our hearts are very frail. And there are places where the road is very steep and very lonely. But we have a wonderful God. And as Paul put it, what can separate us from his love? Not death, Paul says, immediately pushing that aside at once as the most obvious of all impossibilities. No, not death. And Paul was right. For now I, standing here in the roaring of the Jordan, cold to the heart with its dreadful chill and very conscious of the terror of its rushing, I can look back to you who one day in your own turn will have to cross it. And I can say to you, be of good cheer, my friends, for I feel the bottom and it is sound. That's the way I feel today. 
out my own pain, will you let me try to say a clear word to you about this ministry which is yours and mine? I want to remind you that God does not call us to preach some rose-colored glasses, health and wealth, pie-in-the-sky kind of faith. I want to remind you that what we do in worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is not some carefully rehearsed, rigidly scripted performance akin to the theatrical stage. I want to remind you that when we take to the pulpit, it is not to pander to our own egos or to play word games with our people. We are about one task and one task alone, and that is to preach Christ and Christ crucified. Don't dismiss that as simplistic spiritual And don't dare try to tell me that I don't really know what life in the real world is all about. Don't dare suggest that as a preacher I am somehow insulated and isolated from the real workings of the real world. Dear friends, I have been to the bottom. I have been to where few of you, thank God, have ever been, and where few of you, pray God, ever will be. I have been to where life hurts the most and cuts the deepest and hits the hardest. And therefore, listen to me when I tell you that the Christian faith is not some sideline activity, some pleasant diversion, some enjoyable hobby in life. The Christian faith is not something you give yourself to when it's convenient, or when it helps you along on your career track, or when you want to appear respectable. Christianity is not just a part of your life, not just a piece of your experience. Listen to me when I tell you, see it for what it really is, nothing less than the very center of your life. Nothing less than the foundation of your whole existence. Maybe nobody ever said it better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is, to my way of thinking, at least, most of all, best of all, the theologian of the heart. His theology flowed not so much out of dry intellectual research, but out of the incredible passionate joy and passionate pain 
of his spiritual walk with Christ. And these words were really never meant to be printed on stone-cold pages in dust-gathering books, but rather were meant to be lived out day by day by day in the crucible of a life filled with a terrible and terrifying uncertainty. And it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, We must come to grips with Jesus Christ in life. For on coming to grips with Jesus Christ depend life and death, salvation and damnation, and there is salvation in no one.
he said of his son, Alex, Alex, always beat me at every game and at every race. And now he's beating me to the grave. But I know that when Alex beat me to the grave, the finish line was not the middle of the night in Boston Harbor. For if a lamp went out, it was because, at least for Alex, the dawn had come. William Sloan Coffin and I come at the Christian faith from radically different theological perspectives, but we now share a common bond and, I think, a common hope. I think I might have put it a little differently. My son John David beat me to heaven. For my son too. The dog has come. It was our great spiritual ancestor John Calvin who said, what would become of us if we did not take our stand upon hope? If we did not move through the darkness of this world on the path which is illumined by the word of the Spirit of God? It is upon that hope that I stand. A hope wondrously confirmed for me in a telephone call I received. It was from a young man whose name is Robert Midden. I did not know him before the conversation, but he called to say to me that he happened to be following along behind John David the night of the accident. And he went on to say, Dr. Eddington, I want you to know that your son died instantly. Because I immediately rushed to the car, I tried to find a pulse, there was none. And so I called the police, and I waited for the police to arrive. And then there was a long pause. And he said, Dr. Eddington, you don't know me, but I feel like I know you because I watch you on television. I want you to know that I am a Christian. I attend the Calvary Assembly of God. And I want you to know that I held your son in my arms and I prayed for him until the police arrived. Do you have any idea what it means to me to know that when for my son at last the dawn came, there was a disciple of Jesus Christ there to pray him home. What would become of us if we did not take our stand upon hope? Oh, yes. 
that life is serious and that we ought never to take it lightly. I've known all along that we ought not to put off until tomorrow what we ought to do today because tomorrow may never come. I mean, after all, across more than 25 years of ministry, more times than I care to count and remember, I have had to stand at grave size to bury those who were young. I remember the time when the cemetery echoed with the sound of a 21-gun salute and the sounds of heels clicking to attention as young soldier boys presented a folded flag to a mother who just days before had heard a representative of the Department of the Army say, I regret to inform you that your son was killed in action here at Quezon. I remember the time when we carried out to the cemetery the body of a 10-year-old little boy who had been struck by lightning in a terrible storm and I tell you, I don't suppose that I was ever able to answer his parents' question, Why? I remember a magnificent young man, killed in a water skiing accident. And I remember trying to convince his parents that the brightest lights in the night sky are not the stars that stay fixed in their courses year after year, eon after eon, but the brightest lights in the night sky are the shooting stars. So brief, but so blazing. And they are the lights we never forget. I remember the time when I had to bury one of my best friends in life and his 14-year-old son who were killed by a drunk driver. And I preached and I prayed as I laid them side by side there in the cemetery. I now know that I left a piece of my heart in that place. I look back across all those years. To so many, it seems to me, so many. So bright, so full of life, so brilliant, so attractive, and yet caught down before their time. And I remember how I had struggled for all I had worth to try to help their parents, to try to find some way to try to live on. Children named Beth and John David. 
And, and one day we were, we were going to visit the top of Mount Tabor, known as the Mount of Transfiguration. It is located near Nazareth. The road up to the top of Mount Tabor is a very twisting, narrow, treacherous path. And our driver, on this occasion, for some reason, decided that it was his task to get us to the top in record time. <laughs> and so we went careening up this narrow, twisting, treacherous road, flirting with disaster every second along the way. I was in the front seat with the driver. Trisha was in the back seat with Meg and Beth and John David. John David was nine years old at the time. Suddenly, John David leaned up over the back seat and he said, Hey, Dad, give me that little Bible that you always carry in your pocket. I said, Why? He said, Because I think we're going to die on this mountain. <laughs> and when I die, I want to be reading the Bible so that God will know that I belong to Him. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. Thank you.